Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out on this very crisp Sunday morning. That was a chore getting up this morning, wasn't it? The covers felt so good, and they kept a calling, so we appreciate y'all um, making the extra effort to be a part of services this morning. Um, years ago, when Claire and I first moved here to the community, um, I was, for, for a couple of years, driving a school bus for Walton County. I think the Lord sometimes has a way of circling things back and reminding you of the frustrations that you used to be when you were a child. Um, so anyhow, but I really enjoyed the students. I was proud of the time that I got to spend riding the bus, and I got to uh, make connections into the community uh, there where I was driving and got to know those students. It was really a, a ministry for me. One of the unique um, aspects of bus routes is that the kid who lives furthest out in the county, some of y'all were that kid, the kid that lives furthest out in the county always gets picked up, picked up first. Uh, the bus routes for us uh, started at 6 o'clock in the morning, so we were picking up our first kids at 6 o'clock in the morning. And then as you're making your way back toward the school, the kids that live closest to the school are the last ones to get picked up. So around 7.30 we had to be at the school, so 7.25, let's say, those uh, last kids to get picked up we're getting picked up. So what that means is, for the kid who gets, who lives furthest out, right, they're losing about an hour and a half of sleep or so, right? You're following my math here. They're losing about an hour and a half of sleep on those that get picked up uh, first, the furthest ones out in the county. Well, you would think in fairness, when it comes to the afternoon, that we would start with the kid who lives furthest out in the county, then make our way back toward the school, dropping kids off, so that the kid who lives furthest out in the county uh, rides the bus the same as the amount of time as the kid who lives closest to the school, but that's not the way it works, right? The efficiency of the system is we reverse the route. So you start with the kid who lives uh, closest to the school. Remember, they were the last one to get picked up. They didn't have to ride the bus very long. And so on the way home, same thing. They're the first one to get dropped off. Um, and then, the, then you make your way back out to the kid that lives furthest out in the county. And so that kid that lives furthest out in the counties riding the bus about three hours a day. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember those days. And then the kid that lives closest to the school, the one toward the very end of the route, is only riding it for maybe like 10 minutes a day. Uh, you would think, though, I mean, I mean, I would agree with you. That's not fair. But again, that's the efficiency of the system, and that's the way the system works. Um, I, for today, uh, we're going to turn our attention to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And Jesus is making the point with this parable that when, that when it comes to the issue of fairness, fairness has nothing to do with getting into heaven. It doesn't matter how many hours you spend on the bus, it doesn't matter how long you've been riding, uh, how long you've been a Christian, Jesus is saying, hey, look, everybody, the bus arrives at the same destination. Whether you got on the bus last or whether you were the very first one early on in your life, again, the bus arrives at the same destination. Um, so let's take a look at this parable today, Matthew chapter 20. There were, this is kind of part two. Last week we covered some of this. Uh, but Matthew chapter 20, we're going to look at the parable proper. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 20, a little bit of chunk of scripture we're going to read here together, but let's just persevere. Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. For in the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Verse 6, 
And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Last verse, verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. You may be seated. Thank you so much. A chunk of scripture there. I appreciate y'all going through that with me. All right, let's tackle the first of those two verses together. The first of those two verses represent the introduction to the parable. Jesus uh, creates the setting for the parable. So let's take a look at it. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning. We would assume this is about six o'clock in the morning. And so he went out there to hire laborers for his vineyard. So that's the story that Jesus creates. You have this vineyard owner who has, it's time for his grapes to be harvested. And he wants to get those grapes in as quickly as he can. I've never been to a vineyard before. I have no idea about how they harvest those things. But the little bit of reading that I did said, suggested, that grapes cannot be left on the vine. When they're ready to come, you got to get all the grapes in and you got to get them in quickly. If they stay out in the sun, if they stay out in the warmth of the day, the flavor profile, the sugar content of those grapes will begin to change and of course that will affect your end product so they have to be brought in at the right time so that said the vineyard owner needs some additional hands more than he has just on hand there some day laborers to get the harvest in quickly verse 1 tells us that the vineyard owner goes to the marketplace to find these workers these extra workers verse 2 after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. I've got a couple pictures for you here. Uh, the first is a number of Roman coins, or denarii. And so these were silver coins, solid silver coins. The second picture that you have there is of Augustus Caesar. You can see how that thing was struck. They didn't have stamping machines back then. They had a guy with a piece of iron and a hammer, and he would smash it down on top of that silver. And that's why these things had such imperfections about them. These are all silver coins solid silver and this coin represents a fair day's wage in the ancient world this is the same pay that foot soldiers would have gotten this is the agreed upon price between this vineyard owner and these laborers back to verse 2 so the vineyard owner and these migrant workers or day laborers they agree to the price of one denarius for the day's work ahead verse 3 and going out about the third hour that would be nine o'clock in the morning Going out about 9 o'clock in the morning, the vineyard owner saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Verse 4, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So if the first group got hired at 6 a.m. and the second group gets hired at 9 a.m., that means that the early, right, the ones lived first out in the county, the early morning folks that got hired early, they've already been out there working for three hours. They've already been sweat, got some sweat on their brow, and they're already begin to pant. And so these other folks come along three hours later. Now notice that this second group, the 9 a.m. group, that they don't negotiate the price. The, the master of the, of the vineyard simply says to them, I'll pay you whatever is right. Now what follows in verses 5, 6, and 7 is the vineyard owner keeps going back to the marketplace. He keeps looking for more and more workers to come help out in his vineyard. Um, In verse 5, he finds more workers at, quote, the sixth hour. You see that word six there highlighted. That's 12 noon. And more workers at, quote, the ninth hour. That would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And finally, in verse 6, he finds more workers at, quote, the 11th hour. That would be 5 p.m. Quitting time in the ancient world was around 6 p.m., So he's got folks that he literally hires one hour before it's quitting time. 
um, these guys get hired with only an hour left in the workday. Now, I've created a pie chart <laughs> to try and help us visualize what this picture that Jesus is creating. So let's take a look at my pie chart. You can see there each of the five groups that gets hired. There's the 6 a.m. crowd, uh, and they work from 6 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock in the evening, 12 hours of work for them. There's the 9 a.m. workers. They put in nine hours. At the, and then there's the noontime workers. They work six hours and so on. So we have five groups, some working more, some working less, right? Now, we might expect at the end of the day that the compensation package for these workers would be reflected in the number of hours that they work. That would be the fair thing to do, right? That you pay people according to what it is that they have, the hours that they put in. All right, let's see how this thing plays out. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard came to his, said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. But I want you to do this in a specific order. I want you to pay them in a specific order. I want you to start with those that were hired last, so the 5 p.m. crowd, start by paying them, and then work your way backward toward those that were hired first at the beginning of the day. So what's he doing? He's ensuring that the first group hired, the 6 a.m. group, will see, will witness what everybody else is getting paid on down the line. Verse 9, here we go. And when those hired about the 11th hour, the 5 p.m. group, when they were called up, each of them received, whoa, one whole Augustus Caesar silver struck coin. You can already see where this is going, can't you? I mean, Jesus is setting all this up. He's teaching his disciples here. And this thing plays itself out. He goes to group number two, group number three, the 3 p.m. group, the noontime group, the 9 a.m. group. And each one of them down the line, group number, number one, right, the first ones that get hired, the 6 a.m., they're sitting watching all of this play out. One of them, each of them gets one denarius. doesn't matter how long they were working. Verse 10, now when those hired first, the 6 a.m. group, when they saw how everybody else was getting paid, the rate that they had agreed with the pastor to receive, well, they thought to themselves, well, golly, I mean, I'm going to get, we're going to get more. We're going to get like two denarii. Maybe we get three denarii. I mean, this guy's being incredibly generous. By the time he gets to us, surely we're going to get more than just the agreed upon one denarius. Verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but disappointment, right? Each of them received just one denarius now i want to stop here and i want to point out that jesus's story is silly right i mean this is ridiculous right this is all this is so make-believe in the real world this does not work in the real world you cannot pay somebody for work that they did not do and expect for your business to be able to stay open in the real world you cannot possibly pay people for work that they didn't even do again you'll go broke you'll go out of business doing something like that so I have to observe that Jesus, while this is a really nice story and it makes the point that you're trying to make, I mean, this is just the land of make-believe. Well, some commentators, some pastors, when they look at this text, while, they may seem, while it may seem far-fetched, they do see in this parable a call for the restructuring of the world economic system. It's okay, you can jump a little bit. But that's what they've done. They've looked at this parable and they said, hey, look, um, Davos is going on. Let's go preach Jesus and show the world that, hey, look, God, Jesus wants everybody to get paid the same. And that's the conclusion that they're drawing from this parable, uh, redistribution of wealth. These theologians and cultural architects believe that Jesus is expressing his desire to see equal pay for everyone. 
that through this parable, Jesus is advocating for a utopian society where everybody makes the same amount. They say that this text is a commentary on how the economies of the world should be structured. They want to see a leveling of the pay that everyone gets. That this pay should be based not on the number of hours that somebody works, not on the, the, the skill set that they bring, but rather that it should be based on a respect of persons. And further, they contend that if you're a Christian, that you should advocate for equal pay for everybody across the board as well. These theologians and cultural architects look at other passages like Acts chapter 4. You say, Gordon, you could bail this out here in just a second. Just hang with me, okay? They look at passages like Acts chapter 4, where the Bible reports that the early church, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, that no one said that any of, them or that any of the things they had belonged to him was his own, and that they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. They sold their stuff. Verse 35, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So these theologians who are saying, hey, look, the parable of Jesus that he's teaching here is all, it's just trying to lead us as Christians toward this Acts chapter 4 type of society. Um, these theologians see and or teach an issue, a radical, make a radical call uh, for mutual sharing and a leveling of society. They'd even point back to Matthew 19 and verse 21 that we had studied last week, the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus told the guy, hey, look, man, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And so they'd take these texts, they pull them all together, they'd say, hey, look, look at what Jesus is trying to create. Look at what kind of a society, what kind of an economy that Jesus is trying to create. This parable is demonstrating in their minds communal ownership, selling all that we have, everybody making the same thing. And they say that that's what Christians should be doing, both in our personal lives, how we structure our personal finances, as well as the world economic system. You can imagine these folks really are not proponents of capitalism. All right? Okay? It's okay. It's all right. We're going to get there. A couple of thoughts about that. First of all, in the early church, in Acts chapter 4, we see evidence, there's no doubt about it, we read the passages, of radical generosity, right? We can all see that in that passage. It's radical generosity. The people of God should take note that generosity is a quality that becomes followers of Christ. Uh, we should be a generous people, whether it's people that we know in our personal lives, our family, people that we don't even know that we want to help out. Generosity should be a quality that becomes Christians. And the way to foster generosity, we've talked about this before here, is to give. is simply to open up our hands and to say, hey, Lord, use me. Use the resources that I have. Use the time that I have. Lord, use me to accomplish your good uh, purposes in the world. Friends, I've never regretted money that I've given. I've never regretted the time that I've volunteered. I wouldn't take any of that back at all. I mean, that's always an investment in the lives of other people, and that's always something that I celebrate and I'm happy about. We want to cultivate generosity in our own lives. However, to take from that passage in Acts chapter 4 a call to liquidate your belongings, friends, that is a gross misreading of the text. Notice that everyone who gives does so voluntarily. Nobody's going in and forcing these folks to give what they give. Nobody's going in and demanding that they sell all that they have and that they give it to others. If that were the case, then it would no longer be generosity. Forced giving is not generosity. That's redistribution of wealth. We have a name for that. It's called socialism. 
Sorry. I've been a little bit like that lately, haven't I? Socialism is the mandatory government redistribution of wealth, where the government takes from those who have and redistributes that to those who have less. And they have a legal way of doing this. It's called taxation. Taxation is, maybe I won't say that. Again, that's not biblical generosity. Paying your taxes will not create rewards for you in heaven. Fair enough? Fair enough? Okay. Plus, there's the fact that we don't see a leveling of incomes elsewhere in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. In fact, there were churches that Paul planted who met in the homes of very wealthy people, and it's because they had big houses. They could accommodate all the people from that community that were meeting together. Do we see, or we see even in this text in Acts chapter 4, do we ever see Paul commanding somebody to liquidate all that they have and to give it up? To others, no, we never see that kind of thing. Again, that wouldn't be generosity. Instead, what we see is a call to generosity, a call to voluntarily at times when generosity is needed, when there's a need in the community, a need in that church family, a need that that church can meet, and people give to help out in those situations. Friends, Christians should be generous. It should be a defining quality of our lives. So that's Acts chapter 4, but what about this passage back in Matthew chapter 20? Well, the problem with these cultural architects and their radical call to a leveling of society is that they do not establish the context of the parable. They just look at this parable in isolation and think that they know what Jesus is prescribing. But friends, the parable is not, I repeat, not about how we are to interact with one another here on the earth. It's not what this parable is about. This parable is about the afterlife. This parable is about how we get to heaven and God, the basis by which God allows people into heaven. That's what this parable is about. The bus route ends at heaven's gates. That's where this parable is leading us. So let's do a little recap from last week to make sure that we get the context right. I saw, we saw last week how in Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, that Jesus has an encounter with someone that church tradition calls the rich young ruler. Here in Matthew's gospel, he points out down in verse 22 that this guy had great possessions. We learn over in Luke's gospel when he tells this story that this was actually a ruler. We learn in Mark's gospel that he was young. And so you put Mark, Luke, and Matthew together and you get the rich young ruler, okay? The guy wants to know up in verse 16, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What's this guy asking about? What's his question about? It's not about world economic systems. He's asking about how do you get eternal life? How do I get there? How do I make sure that when I breathe my last here, that I take my next in the afterlife in heaven? How do I get into heaven? That's the topic matter of this parable, not world economic systems. This rich young ruler presumes that when it comes to the issue of eternal life, that a person has to earn it, that you've got to log so many hours on the ground. You've got to go out in the master's vineyard. You've got to work. You know, you've got to get hired early. You've got to work throughout the day if you're ever going to get the, um, the, you know, the denarius or the reward, that you've got to log X number of hours, that you've got to put in X amount of time, that you've got to be on the bus, if you would, if you want to get to the destination. Now, we spent some time last week examining Jesus' response to that, and Jesus completely shattering the foundation or the presupposition that this guy has that you can somehow earn eternal life. And we heard that last week, and you can jump online and listen to that on, uh, online if you want to, if you want to catch up with some of those details. But in a nutshell, Jesus tells this guy that eternal life is not something that you earn. And then he turns to the disciples and he tells them this 
parable. Back to verse 1. He says, friends, that's not the way the kingdom of heaven works. Verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house, the master being God, who went out early in the morning and found some converts. Verse 2. And they agreed on the payment of being allowed into heaven. They agreed on the payment of eternal life. Verse 3. The master, because he was a merciful master, because he didn't want anybody to miss out on getting a denarius, he went back to the marketplace and he saw other people standing around idle there who also needed this payment, who also needed this reward. And he said in verse 4, you may not believe what I'm going to pay you. You may not believe that it's fair, but I will give you what I believe is right. And it'll be based on my mercy, not on the fact that you had earned it. And then in verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Isn't this a beautiful master? He wants everybody that's hanging out at the marketplace to make sure that they have an opportunity to receive this uh, gift. To make sure that they get on the bus. The master knows what payment they're going to receive. He plans to give it to them. It's going to be more than they deserve. Absolutely more. But what, again, a merciful master. He even shows up at the end of some of their lives. Verse 6, at the 11th hour. I mean, you've heard of 11th hour conversions before, right? People who come to the end of their life and they repent of sins and they are given the gift of eternal life in heaven. The master says, hey, look, 11th hour conversion people, come, you are welcome as well. Though you have not served me long, though you've not been on the bus for very long, you will get the same payment as the rest. Again, what a merciful master. That's one of the things that we see here in this story. Now again, though, why does Jesus tell this parable? Is he just trying to show the mercy of God? Well, in part. But here comes the real point of the parable. Look at verse 11 with me. Here's the point. And on receiving their denarius, the 6 a.m. group grumbled hmm, at the master. Verse 12, saying, we got a raw deal here. I mean, this isn't fair, right? We've been on the bus since early in the morning, and this guy just jumped on at the end of his life, at the end of the day. This isn't fair. How come he gets to get the same thing that I get when I've been riding on the bus all this time? We've borne the burden of the day. We've been out in the scorching heat. We've been busting our tails all day. Friends, is it fair that some folks will live like the devil their whole life have all that fun or sin, make no sacrifices, live absent of generosity, and get the same payment that those that have been in the faith all these years. Friends, is that fair? No, but that's God's system. God is a merciful God. Through this parable, he is, he is communicating that to us. And again, I'm glad that God's system for us getting into heaven is not based on what I do. Aren't you? I mean, if God gave us what we really deserved, I don't think we'd like it. I know we wouldn't like it. So I'm glad that he's a merciful God. It's based on what he believes is right. Jesus says as much in verse 13. Listen to the master's response, verse 13. But the master replied to them, friend, again, this is not a stern rebuke. He's not, being, he's not putting these guys in their place because they asked Jesus this question. He says to them, friend, am I doing you no wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker, the 5 p.m. group, as I give to you. Again, aren't you glad that that is God's system? 
for getting eternal life, for gaining access into heaven. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on how many hours you log for the Lord or what you accomplish for him, but rather it is based on what Jesus did for us and then us appropriating or applying that to our life by putting our faith and our trust in him. The parable drives home that point that Jesus is trying to get across to this rich young ruler, hey, look, gang, you cannot earn your way to heaven. But back to this first group, the 6 a.m. group. Notice again that Jesus does not rebuke them. He merely informs them about the master's mercy. Verse 15, again, he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Verse 16, so what if the last are first? So what if they get more grace than you got? So what if the first are last? That's just the way it is. That's the way eternal life works, and the God of the universe has spoken. Right? All right, so we see this parable has nothing to do with the world economic system. Would we agree? Okay, I right, just want to make sure we're all on that same page. When it comes to the issue of eternal life, it has nothing to do with that. It's talking about, or it has, it has to do with eternal life, not with uh, how we are to interact with one another here on this life. Um, one more visit to the pie chart. So take a look at this. So the first of these pie charts, it just shows what we've been talking about here, that when it comes to the issue of eternal life, everybody's going to get equal pay. Everybody's going to get the same thing. Everybody's going to get access into the heaven. Like when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the pearly gates are going to open up for you, and you'll be welcomed in. And so the second pie chart just reiterates that, that everybody's going to get the equal, the same, the same uh, eternal life reward, if you would, uh, some people, though they ride on the bus their whole lives, right, they're going to get the same uh, destination that those that hopped on at the last minute will get. And again, that just shows the mercy of God. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today, which means it's time for us to stop and ask that question that I know y'all love. What difference does all this make to my life? Maybe you don't love it as much as I do. I love it. Uh, what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, uh, you know, I, okay, I, I appreciate what he's saying here. I see the mercies of God. But again, how's that help me in my everyday life? And what motivation does this give me to want to live for Jesus? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. First of all, let me point out one of the things that this passage uh, tells us. First of all, it tells us that the right and proper way to handle the word of God is through a historical, contextual treatment of the text. It's great to read the Bible devotionally, and I sit down and I read Psalm 23, and I read about how the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want, and he was with me in the, in the valleys, and he's with me on the mountaintop, and all those sorts of things, and I, the Word of God just speaks to me and encourages me, but when I'm sitting down and trying to figure out meanings of passages, it is important that we consider all the surrounding material that's going on, uh, otherwise we may end up with a false interpretation of the parable. Um, or of a passage of scripture. You remember one of the rules that we had, I got them up here on the board for you, rule number three of how to interpret parables is that we want to make sure that we consider the context in which the parable is given. That is, we want to consider, I mean, none of these parables were intended to be read or understood in isolation. There was always some event in the life of Jesus. There was always some question that somebody had raised that Jesus says, well, let me, let me answer that with this. The kingdom of God is like and then he gives a teaching, and that teaching comes through the parable. The parable is given in response to some event or some question that's been raised. And so we need to take some time, like we did last week, considering the material surrounding this parable make, to make sure that we get the, uh, the, our treatment of the text right. 
Um, therefore, any treatment of the parable that does not take into consideration the surrounding events can lead us to a false interpretation. It can put words in the mouth of Jesus that Jesus never intended, words about how we have supposed to have, you know, readjust our world economic system. Again, Jesus never had that in mind when he was talking about this parable, but that's where some people go because they don't spend the time doing the historical contextual work. So let this be a lesson to us, to get the context right, to always consider the context. This parable is about God's system for how people get eternal life. Number two, second difference that this makes to your life and to mine, when it comes to the issue of how people get eternal life, this parable teaches us that it is not based on human achievement and human performance. God's not like keeping a, a record of the stuff that you've done, and then when you get to heaven, like Paul Newman said, I hope that the good outweighs the bad in my life, and, and that the scales are tipped in that direction. No, that's not the way eternal life works. It's not built on that basis. That's not how you gain access to heaven. No one earns their way into heaven. Again, that was the point that Jesus was trying to get across to this rich young ruler. The parable demonstrates that it doesn't matter how many hours you've been on the bus when it comes to heaven, that it doesn't matter how many hours you've been out in the field. It doesn't matter how long you've been working for the Lord. When it comes to the issue of eternal life, and as that as long as you respond to the master's invitation, the payment or the gift of eternal life is yours. Maybe you started out with Jesus early in life, or maybe you know somebody who got saved, who put their faith and trust in Jesus in the 11th hour, right? But the payment of eternal life is there and it's offered for both whether they've been on the bus a long time or they just hopped on now about the 11th hour let's talk about that for just a moment maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself you know what i agree that jesus is the way to heaven like i wouldn't argue that i i i think he really is i see what he did on the cross and i believe that he was there paying the price for my sins and one day i look forward to putting my faith and my trust in him for eternity, and I'll repent of my sins. But, you know, the way I'm looking at it, like if I'm just trying to get the best scenario for myself, I'm going to, I'm just going to wait, <laughs> right? Because I, I, there's things I want to do in life. I want to live the way I want to live, right? I know how the Bible says I'm supposed to live, and if I repent of my sins, then, you know, life's supposed to kind of make some changes for me, and, and, if, and, and if, I, if I repent of my sins and I turn to Jesus, then I can start making those changes, and, and, and I'll miss out on all the fun. And so I'm going to wait, until I get a little bit further down the line. And when I see the grim reaper approaching, I'll, I'll okay, Jesus, I, I, pray, I repent of my sins, and I pray I'm going to ask you to forgive me of my sins. And so kind of thinking like some 11th hour thoughts there. Well, that's certainly a way to look at it. But here's the problem with that thinking. If we're counting on the bus to come at the 11th hour, sometimes the bus shows up at 1030. And we got an awful, think about it, an awful lot at stake here to take that kind of a risk. It's for this reason that Jesus says, Luke 12 and verse 20, fool, you fool, this night, did you not know? No, you didn't, because none of us knows what tomorrow holds. This night, your life is required of you. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul was pleading with the Corinthians when he said 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, or chapter 6 and verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now, today, right at this moment, is the day of salvation. Friends, none of us is guaranteed 
tomorrow. None of us. And when, and when there is this much at stake, we don't want to mess around. Listen to the Lord Jesus. Don't be a fool. Give your life to Jesus and do it today. Today's the day of salvation. Number three, my last point here this morning. What difference does all this make to your life and to mine? Well, notice that what this parable does not teach. This parable does not teach on the topic of rewards once you're in heaven. That's not the scope of this parable. This parable is talking about the pearly gates open, you getting ushered in, but what happens once you get in there, the rewards that you receive once you get in there, that's beyond the scope of the teaching of this parable. This parable teaches on God's system for gaining entry into heaven. That is, it is not based on human achievement, how many hours you've logged. It's not based on human performance. We see that all through this parable. Getting into heaven is that you accept the master's invitation that you get on the bus. That's what this parable is talking about. But rewards in heaven are a separate issue. Look back with me to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Matthew 19 and verse 28 Peter has just pointed out that he and the other disciples have done what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do. Hey, we gave up everything. Like, we, we did that. We liquidated everything. We left father and mother. We left brothers and sisters. We left everything in order to follow after you. And let's look at Jesus' response to him. It confirms that while their sacrifice does nothing to open the doors of heaven to them, it does, in fact, impact the rewards that they will receive verse 28 jesus says truly i say to you in the new world that is when you get into heaven when you get to the afterlife when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of israel so jesus confirms there to peter that peter's going to get a different reward than gordon griffin's going to get I'm fine with that. I think Peter earned every bit of it, right? That Jesus is going to show him this degree of reward that he's going to get, where he's going to be sitting on a, on a throne, and he's going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's wonderful for Peter. I'm excited for Peter, but that's going to be something Peter gets, not something that I get. Verse 29, Jesus goes on to say, and everyone, for the rest of us, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold. In other words, God is going to reward each one of us accordingly, proportionately, and those rewards will be ours for all of eternity. So the issue of rewards in heaven is separate. It is different from actually getting into or accessing heaven itself. Those are two separate issues. The parable speaks to the one of access to heaven. It does not speak to the issue of rewards in heaven. The access is based on the mercy of God. Rewards are based on the justice of God. Y'all follow me? Okay. Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Note again in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses and family and lands will receive a hundredfold. Now notice the next word, and I underlined it in my Bible, the word and will inherit eternal life. I, wanted, I underlined it because I wanted to separate in my mind next time I read that passage. There's two different issues going on here. One is rewards. One is actually getting access to heaven itself. So what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Friends, there are so many reasons why we should respond to the Lord's invitation today and accept his offer and get on the bus today. Equally, there are so many reasons 
why we should live for him and breathe every breath that he's given for him among them. And you can call it self-interest, right? Jesus is the one who taught on this. Don't shoot the master. Jesus, Jesus thought we could handle this appropriately and rightly. And he wanted to let us know about this. One of the reasons, motivations, if you would call it motivations, call it self-interest, whatever you want to call it, is that among those reasons is to live for Jesus today are the rewards that he promises when we get there. Again, you can call that self-interest. I'm going to trust that you do the right thing with that knowledge. I never have given so that I could get. I've never helped out so that I could get a favor in return. Certainly, Jesus is not baiting us to have that kind of an approach when it comes to uh, our generosity in life. Um, but again, if we need another level of motivation to live our life for Christ, there you go. Jesus wanted us to know about it. I'll close with these words straight from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew 19 and verse 29. Here's the promise. And everyone who has left houses or brother or sisters or father or mother or children or lands has made sacrifices for me, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and different system will inherit eternal life. One is based on the justice of God. The other is based on the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, thank you for perhaps clearing up some stuff for us in our minds about eternal life and how that system works. Lord Jesus, the, the words are plain for us to read on the text. Thank you for your teaching. God, we ask that we would take this knowledge, we would appropriate it in our life in a way, Lord, that shows our gratitude to you. Lord, in a way that maximizes our desire to serve you and to glorify you with our lives. Lord, the call of, that you gave to Peter, the call that you gave to the disciples is no different, Lord, than what you're asking of us. Lord, you, you want it all. You want us to come to you with our hands empty and saying, Lord, it's all on the table. Yes, you've given me these things to manage in this life. And Lord, I want to manage them to the best of my ability, but Lord, let me do it for your glory. Let me do it, Lord, for your name's sake, for your renown. Jesus, we just ask that you would, in the space that we have here of communion, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood, Lord God, that you would just fill our hearts with gratitude for this wonderful system of mercy to be able to gain access to you. And Lord, for your perfect justice which also awaits. God, we give you this space. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.